Masechet Ketubah Dafnun Chayet. We're discussing this Mishnah. Let's remind ourselves of the details uh, that a couple has 12 months to get married from the time that they are engaged to be married. And so if he is not ready after 12 months, he nevertheless has to provide sustenance to her and he can give her Terumah. Uh, how much, if he's, a, if he's a Kohen and she's a Bat Yisrael, he can pay her that Mizonot, that food, with Terumah food, um, even, though, um, uh, even though they're not married yet. And now, how much can he give her from Terumah food? The Bitarfon says, all of it, all of her food, he can be given to her as Terumah, even though she's going to be Nida some of the time, she'll have to sell it and buy regular food. But Rabbi Akiba says, uh, half and half. Uh, and we'll discuss that calculation. Uh, now, the, it doesn't count for the Yavam. The Yavam does not have to... He, 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 the Yavam, uh, if the husband dies, then the clock starts again, and the Yavam cannot uh, give her... She cannot eat Terumah under the Yavam for the whole 12 months uh, after the husband dies, and so we don't we don't add the time that she's waiting under the husband with the time that she's waiting for the Yavam. And finally, we say that all that was the original ruling, the um, uh, that uh, she eats terumah only uh, uh, that she eats terumah after one year of waiting. But uh, Bet Din afterwards said that that even if it's a full year that she's waiting and now the husband has to uh, provide for her, yes, he'll have to provide for her, but cannot give her tirumah because she cannot have tirumah un- until she is taken into her husband's house. And we will see why the difference between the earlier ruling and the later ruling. All right, so that was a review. And now... We analyze Rabbi Tarfon Omen Notin Lahakol Teruma Abaye Amar Abaye. Abaye is going to have two qualifications to this ruling. Machloket Bebat Kohen Le Kohen. Aval Bebat Yisrael Le Kohen Divrei Hakol Mechsa Cholin Mechsa Teruma. When Rabbi Tarfon says that one can pay uh, the mezonot of his fiance with all Teruma, that was only if she is a Bat Kohen and marrying a Kohen. Well, what's the difference? If she's a bat kohen, then she knows already how to deal with tirumah. She knows already from growing up in her father's house that whenever she is teme'a, whenever she's nida, she and she wants to consume tirumah, she won't be allowed to. She'll have to sell that tirumah and buy cholin for it. So she knows the system already. And that's why if she um, is already a bat kohen and knows the system in marrying kohen, then the Kohen can pay her in all Terumah and she'll know what to do with it. But if she's a Bat Yisrael, she's not used to handling Terumah. She doesn't know uh, when she can and when she can't eat it and how what to do with it when she can't eat it as she has to sell it. Uh, then everyone agrees, even the Bitarfon would agree with Rabbi Akiva that he must give her half Terumah and half Chulin. That's qualification number one. A second one. That this ruling of Rabbi Tarfon, that one can pay his wife this with food, all Terumah, that's only during the Kiddushin period. If she already waited one year, but they're still Mikudeshet, and he's not ready to get married, and they didn't do Nisuin yet, then he can give her all Terumah. But um, once they are married, 
then even Rabbi Talfon would agree that he has to give her half Tirumah and half um, Cholin. The reason is because getting all Tirumah is a pain uh, because it's going to be some days during the month that she's for sure going to be Nida. Uh, and now she has to take this Tudumah and sell it. He has to provide for her in a proper way once they're married. And a proper way means in a way that's convenient. So half Tudumah, she can use it during uh, the um, half uh, uh, plus month of, uh, part of the month that she is Tehora. And the Cholin, she will use all the time that she is Teme'a. And so that makes sense when she when he's nesua and the full responsibility of the ketubah kicks in that he has to provide for her fully during the during the time of erusin, uh, where they're not really they're not fully married yet, and it's just that he he promised her food because it's after twelve months already. So then he can um, rely on uh, giving her only teruma according to the bitarfon. All right, Abaya said these two things, and even though Abaya is a fourth generation Amora, we have proof that this was already uh, this interpretation has a confirmation from Abraita. All that just uh, repeats the Mishnah. When is this machloke true? When you have someone who is a bat kohen marrying kohen. But if it, she grew up as a bat Israel and marrying a kohen, then even the bitafon would agree with Rabbi Akiva that you give half half. And when do, is this machloke true? So it's really uh, actually word for word. Uh, the words of Abaye, uh, which is always interesting when you ever have a Tanya Mehachi like this. Well, did Abaye have the Braita? If he knew the Braita, why didn't he quote and say, you know, the uh, Taner? Uh, um, he doesn't quote it as a Braita, he quotes it as his, his own words. So did he not have the Braita? Well, how could it be that we have, happen to have a Braita that's exactly the same words? So this could be a transmission issue. Uh, sometimes uh, a, a tradition is transmitted word for word, but the attribution uh, may, be, uh, may become different. Either it was originally Braita, but someone forgot it was a Braita. Maybe Abaya repeated it as a Braita, but during transmission they thought it was his own words. Uh, or the other way around. Uh, but uh, so one way or another, it seems that this is a common tradition that uh, either was originally a Braita and Abaya repeated it, or originally was Abaya's words, and then uh, became so authoritative that it was remembered as a Braita. Alright, the Braita continues, however, with a couple of more opinions. Rebuda says, not half and half like Rebbe Akiba, but rather two thirds Tiruma, one third Chulin. This is a benefit for the husband if he's a Kohen, because there's always an excess of Tiruma, because the pool of people that can eat Tiruma is so much smaller so we can give her two-thirds and one-third and uh, this would make sense according to the usual uh, cycle if a woman is nida 
um, at a, you know, 10 days out of 30. So during that 10 days, she'll, that's a, a one third, she'll eat chulin. And during the other two thirds, when she is tehora, she can eat the teruma. So this is actually an interesting machloket if it's based on uh, the estimate of how many days a woman is uh, nida. It can give us some idea of in practice what was going on back then. Uh, and, uh, you know, how many days they usually practiced. At the Midar on the Doraita level, the days of Nida are only seven, and it's a Zava who has to add seven clean days plus uh, at least three um, days of uh, seeing blood, uh, which would be the at least ten. So even according to this, it sounds like already in those days they were being machmir to treat all Nidot like Zavot, which is what we do today. Uh, if it was only Nida, uh, then maybe it would be only a quarter of a month, and he could say three quarters uh, tiruma, but one quarter chulin. So this may be uh, proof that already in the times of the Tanaim, uh, women were commonly nida um, uh, uh, um, for teme'ot for more than uh, more than a, a week, perhaps following the zava. Um, Another possibility is what Khatam Sofer says, that even if you say that they follow only the Doraita law of seven days of Nida, she also would be Teme'a for other reasons, uh, like uh, uh, once a week at least is the time of Onah, she would become Teme'a as from, uh, uh, from Kedi. And uh, therefore you have to add those three days, if it was Friday night, um, to the sev- to the sevens, which would be uh, ten days altogether. So, any there are lots of reasons why someone become tamed. There's you know, uh, and all kinds of reasons why she might become tamed. She touched a mouse. Also, she wouldn't be able to, a dead mouse. She wouldn't be able to eat teruma. Um, okay. So Rabbi Tarfon, Rabbi Huda Omer, you know, ten lahakol teruma vehi mocheret velokachat bedamim cholin. Rabbi Huda says that he can pay her all in Tiruma. This sounds just like Rabbi Tarfon. So what's the difference between Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Uda? Maybe it's encoded in the next part, which is she will have to sell the Tiruma and buy with that money Chulin. So Rashi reads into this, Rabbi Uda is saying, he has to give her a little extra Tiruma. Let's say he has to give her, you know, $100 worth of food. So fine, that would be $100 worth of Chulin. But if he pays her in Tiruma, he has to add... Ten uh, percent or whatever it is, because he's the the price for tiruma is uh, is lower, and so she'll have to sell the tiruma for a lower price and buy chulin at a higher price. So he has to give her more tiruma to make up the difference. seems to be following up on Biuda and saying not just an extra, you know, 10 or 20 percent, whatever would be that market value, but rather if any, whenever it says he can pay Tiruma, he has to give her double the amount of Tiruma than he would give of Chulin. If it's uh, one pound of Chulin that he should give her, then it has to be two pounds of Tiruma. And that would make it a lot more easy for the woman to exchange uh, if she has double the amount of Tiruma, but we want to refrain uh, from making her go through all the trouble. So my Benai, what is the difference between those last two opinions? It's the amount of effort. According to Rabbi Yehuda, 
he just he just gives her the equivalent of the market price, uh, which means she'll have she might have to do some work to go and find Kohanim who can buy the Tiruma. Uh, with enough work, she'll be able to buy the same amount of Chulin. According to Rashbag, we don't want her to put any effort into it at all. If she's selling twice the amount of teruma, then uh, people will be coming and knocking on her door saying, hey, couldn't we exchange? And that will make it very easy for her. All right. Uh, the next part of the Mishnah said that the Yavam does not enable a woman to eat teruma. Uh, why? Because the Torah says that a Kohen can issue teruma to anyone who is an acquisition of his money, which means slaves, um, and uh, his wife, after you do Kiddushin, so he acquires her with money in some sense. So that's true for a wife, after Kiddushin, then that is applicable. It's in his house. He's, she is in his household under his authority. But an, a Yavam never does Kinyan, uh, never does Kiddushin. It's just by, by his brother, the fact of his brother dying, she falls to him. So he, she is not his acquisition. And therefore, according to this reasoning, even after 12 months, it doesn't matter. The Yavam would never have to, would never be able to feed his wife, his Yishomeret Yavam, Yavam, Teruma, until they're fully married. Asta shisha chodashim Now, next part says, if she waited for six months, uh, before, uh, while her husband, uh, from the time that they got engaged, so six months is less than a year, so she does not give her Teruma. Now, and then it says, then it says, also, six months for Yavam. Now, now you told me that six months, if she is uh, engaged to his her husband for six months, then he does not give her tiruma. Well, uh, then if I know that, then all the more so yavam, because yavam doesn't even have an ability to feed his wife tiruma until they're married. So why would you even have to tell me that? Answer is Zov and Katana. You're right, it wouldn't be necessary, but that's one of the structures of the Mishnah. Sometimes it mentions something, and then it mentions something that's even more obvious. I don't have to tell you, of course, the second case. Alright, so now we learned that there were two uh, stages in the development of the law. Uh, the earlier stage is that after 12 months of waiting, she uh, can demand that now you have to feed me, and at that point, he can give her tiruma. Whereas the later ruling said, no tiruma, not even after 12 months until they're married. So let's see why. Yesterday, we saw these two names, Ula and Rav Shemuel in the context of what is the reason for the first ruling, we saw on a deoraita level, Kinyan Kaspo, she should be able to have Tiruma already from the time of Kiddushin. So why, why wait at all? And so there, Ula said the reason is because she's still in her father's home and she may share food with her family. Whereas Rav Shemuel Badihuda said the reason is because there's a blemish, Mishum Simpon. So on the previous staff, this, these were the words of Rav Shemuel Badihuda who said because of Simpon, uh, but now we're asking a different question. Uh, Simpon means that uh, she may have a blemish, and if 
you if she feeds if he feeds her teruma before the nisuin and on the night of nisuin he finds a blemish and says I want to retroactively undo the whole thing so it'll turn out that she ate that teruma not as kinyan kaspo because the kiddushin is nullified so that was the reasoning for why you have you can't eat teruma right away after the kiddushin now we're asking how about the second part which has even which said in which the betin said even after a year you still know Tiruma until they're actually married. So, uh, Ula, or some say, say because of Simpon. Um, all right, so now let's analyze which one of these authors makes sense. Bishlama le Ula, if it's Ula that said this second reason, then it all makes sense. Ula can explain all the stages. The original Deoraita stages at Kiddushin, she can eat Tiruma. Then the rabbis made one decree and said, no, not at that time because she's still in her father's house and uh, she's going to share the tiruma. So therefore they said not allowed until one year. After one year, since he has an obligation to feed her, he's going to do so in a separate house. And so she's not going to uh, share with her family. Fine, that's after one year. Now the rabbis came again and made a second takana and said, no, no tiruma until you're actually married. So what's the reason for that? So Ula would agree that there's a secondary reason of Simpon that there may be blemishes and retroactively the whole Kiddushin will be annulled. So all we can understand all the stages according to all the stages according to Ula. explained the first decree because of Simpon, and now they're extending it again because of Simpon. What's the difference between them? And the answer is, the difference would be uh, doing a, an external uh, investigation, meaning someone besides the husband, uh, like one of his relatives, maybe his mother or his sister, would uh, check the fiancé and uh, see if she has any physical blemishes on her body. So, So, originally, when they made the first decree, they said, listen, don't, as soon as you do, uh, uh, here's the full uh, reconstruction. Um, in the Torah law, once you do Kiddushin, she can eat Tirumah. The rabbis came and say, yeah, but maybe he's going to have a blemish. So uh, she's going to have a blemish and they'll undo it retroactively. So it says, okay, not allowed until one year. What happens after one year? Well, at that point, he, even though there's no Nisuin yet, he will uh, arrange for his relative, female relative, to check her, and that will be an, a superficial outside investigation that he, she, that she, he does through his relative, and that is a sufficient uh, check. And once you do that, he's not going to retroactively annul the marriage anymore, so she can start eating tiruma. But after that, they decided, you know what? That is only an external investigation that a relative, and they, they're not going to be as thorough as the husband himself will be um, at the consummation after the marriage. And so they made a secondary uh, decree that, you know what? We should not allow Tiruma, not even after the one year, until there is full Nisuin. The next Mishnah discusses the rights and obligations uh, between the husband and wife. Uh, the husband has a basic obligation to provide sustenance to his wife, and in return, he has a right to her earnings. Uh, that's true for the basic amount of her earnings. Uh, that would be 
uh, more or less equivalent to the sustenance that he has to pay for her. However, if a wife makes more, much more than the basic earnings, then what happens to that extra money? So that also goes to the husband in exchange for him giving her an allowance of a ma'a each week. So there's two levels of what he has to give her and what he has a right to take from her uh, um, as, as equivalent. Okay, so now the Mishnah is going to talk about a case where a husband says that my wife's earnings will be consecrated to the Bet HaMikdash. They will be holy. Does that work or not? The answer is it does not work. She can continue working and she can uh, eat, meaning sustain herself from her own work, uh, meaning that these earnings do not belong to the husband. They remain part of the, they remain the wives, and the person does not have a right to consecrate something that does not belong to him. That's why the consecration doesn't work. Uh, the Gemara is going to talk about what kind of case are we talking about? Is it a case where he is sustaining her, and therefore he gets her earnings? Well, then he should have a right to uh, make it consecrated. Uh, so rather, it sounds like it must be talking about a case where she keeps her own, um, her own earnings and does not sustain, uh, and sustains herself. Uh, okay, but that we'll discuss. Now, Hamotad, the added amount, the surplus of what she gets above and beyond what she would need for her uh, sustenance, what about, what about if the husband consecrates uh, that part, or if he consecrates all of it? Uh, does the surplus also not get, does the surplus get consecrated or not? Yes, in fact, does get consecrated, uh, which is interesting that the base amount does not, but the added amount does get consecrated. And so why does the husband have a right to the surplus? We'll see the Gemara will talk about that. And according to one interpretation, it only means after her death, when he inherits it, then it becomes consecrated, but he won't have a right to it at that point. Um, and Yochanan also would also say, Chulin, uh, he does not have a right to the added amount, um, but uh, the surplus, that's hers. And so therefore, it is not consecrated. Okay, more discussion on that. Now, the Gemara introduces a, a law. Although there's a basic obligation for the husband to sustain his wife, a uh, wife can say, listen, I don't want your food, and um, and I and you will not get my the earnings uh, that I work for. Right? I make enough money, and uh, I don't want your food, and I don't want you to take my money. So a wife has a right to make that deal. Uh, that is permissible. Now, Kasabar, uh, how come Rav thinks that this can be done? The reason is because what comes first, the obligation for earnings or the, uh, the, the obligation of sustenance or the right to take earnings? He must think that the rabbis primarily made the obligation that the man has to feed his wife. That's the number one thing. And then in consequence, they said, listen, if the husband has to feed his wife and she gets to keep for her own earnings, that will lead to eva, to animosity. He's going to see, he's going to say, look, she makes money. She keeps all the money and I have to pay for her food. And he'll, uh, he'll, it'll, it'll, uh, he'll be upset about it. So therefore the rabbi said, since we are obligating the husband to feed his wife, therefore, as a consequence, we will allow him to keep her earnings. Since that's the basic, um, that's the, the basic 
requirement is sustenance, therefore if she says, I don't want what I have a right to, the rabbi said you have to feed me, you keep it, I don't care about it. And so since he's not providing for her, then the secondary obligation falls away uh, as well. If it was the other way around, if the primary obligation was that the husband has a right to her earnings, and then as a consequence, they said, listen, you're getting her earnings, I think you should feed her. If that was, if that was the case, then she would not have a right to say no, that you can't get my earnings because that's a basic, that would be a basic law. So we see that according to Rav Huna in the name of Rav, the, the basic requirement is for feeding, and that's why she can refuse it. Uh, all right, now we have going to bring a couple of challenges to this statement of Rav. The, um, the sec, uh, one challenge and then a proof. We have a Braita that says the rabbis instituted food in place of her earnings, which sounds like her earnings are the basic requirement. And then they said, well, since you're getting her earnings, then you all should, should, should feed her. So that's against what we just said. Uh, so we answer, amend the Braita. Uh, say instead that the rabbis instituted that the husband gets his wife's earnings and because he has to pay her for her food. So the basic requirement is he has to pay for her food, and therefore, in consequence, he should get her earnings, and that's why she can reject it. Okay, so we solved that problem. Now we're going to bring a possible proof from our Mishnah. That's why this is all, that's why Rav's statement is here in the first place. My love, Benizonet. Mishnah said that if a man consecrates the earnings of his wife, she gets to keep them and eat from her own earnings. Aren't we talking about a case where she is sustained? Now, it looks like uh, this means sustained by her husband, but actually it means has to mean the opposite. It means that the husband can sustain or is willing to, but she refuses and says, I want to feed myself and I want to keep my own money. Since it's talking about such a case, that's why the husband has no rights to her earnings, and that's why if the husband tries to consecrate them, they don't work. So, therefore, this seems to be a proof to support the law of Rav Huna in the name of Rav. And we say not necessarily law, nizonet. maybe so about a case where the husband not only does not, but cannot feed his wife. He doesn't have sufficient funds for it. And uh, and that's the reason uh, why she keeps it. Um, but that, it's only because he is not feeding her because he is not capable of giving her food, and that's why she can she keeps her earnings. But if she but if he wanted, if he had the ability to feed her and wants to, um, then she would not have a right to opt out. So there's not necessarily a uh, a, a proof from here. And then we ask about that ibish and if you talk, if you're really talking about a case where he is not, he, he cannot, does not have funds to feed her, and that then therefore she keeps her earnings, isn't that obvious? Uh, would would anyone possibly think that a man can uh, not feed his wife because he can't or he, or he refuses, and still he was he would get her earnings? That would be impossible. Uh, as follows, I Let's compare this to a case of a slave, even according to the opinion that says that a master can tell his slave, you work for me and I'm not feeding you. 
you have to do all you have to do all the work. I I keep your earnings, and you have to find your own food. That's a machloket whether a master can say that. But that opinion would only apply to Evid Kanani, the Loketi Be'imach, where it doesn't say that it's good for him with you. Um, where, uh, where it does say it's good for him with you, talking about a case where the Evadivri is happy with his master and he wants to stay longer. So we learn from there that one has to, um, uh, feed his Evadivri. According to one opinion, he has to feed also an Evid Kanaani. So law, a uh, law. So regarding Evadivri, one cannot say, I'm going to keep your earnings and you have to find your own food. So all the more so with one's wife, it would be impossible for anyone to think that a man could get away with not feeding his wife and keep her earnings. Uh, so therefore, we say, what would be the point of this Mishnah? It would be obvious. And the answer is, oh, we need it for the last clause. You're right, the first clause is obvious that if he's not sustaining his wife because he can't afford it, then obviously he doesn't have a right over her earnings, and so therefore if he tries to consecrate it, it wouldn't work. That part is obvious. But the rest of it we need. Motad, regarding any excess that she surplus that she makes. So teach us the law of Rabbi Meir, that even in that case, uh, where he's not sustaining her, nevertheless, could be he has a right over her a surplus, and that's why when he consecrates the, consecrates her earnings, the surplus does become hektish. Okay, we're going to come back to that Rebimeir's opinion. But right now we want to note that Peliga Deresh Lakish, Rav Huna's law that she can opt out as goes against the opinion of Resh Lakish. Uh, if you read the Mishnah, you might think that how come Rabbi Meir says uh, that when a husband says your earnings are consecrated, they the surplus becomes hekdesh. You might derive from this the uh, that according to Rabbi Meir, one can consecrate something that doesn't exist in the world? This is a general question. Can you make an acquisition, do a transaction with something that doesn't yet exist, that will only exist in the future? There's like future options. And uh, so it might seem that, well, her, her earnings, if he consecrates her future earnings, they don't exist yet. So uh, you might think that um, this is, we can conclude from here, that one can consecrate consecrate something that doesn't exist in the world. Deshaki says, no, don't think that. That's not the best explanation for this Mishnah. Rather, Rebimeir's reasoning is because a man can force his wife to give over uh, to him her earnings, so too he can say to her, it's as if he's saying, your hands themselves are consecrated. Not the physical hands, but um, anything that the hands will do, anything that they will make, all of her work, um, are already consecrated. So therefore, we can explain it, not that, not that it's something that does, didn't come into the world yet. It's true, the earnings have not come into the world yet. But her potential earning power, that's, that's what it means, her, her hands. Uh, her hands, that whatever they do are consecrated. So that is something that does exist in the world. We see from this uh, statement of Reshakish that a man can force uh, his wife to give over her earnings and she cannot opt out.
Okay, um, so that's the opposite of Rav Huna's, uh, opinion that she can opt out. We ask about that. But that's not what he said. He said, your, in, in the language of the Mishnah, he said, your earnings are consecrated. He didn't say, your, your hands are consecrated. So why should it possibly work? Oh, this is because we have another statement of Rabbi Meir, who says in general, a person does not, does not say words for naught. If a person says something and they don't make any legal sense, then we advocate for him and say he must have meant something else and we'll kind of fix it up for him so that it does make legal sense. So therefore, when a person says, um, uh, that my wife's earnings will be consecrated since these are future earnings and that does not make a legal sense because you cannot sanctify something that is not in the world, we will uh, interpret it as if he said, your hands are now consecrated and thereby all the future earnings will be consecrated. Okay, so that explains that point. Okay, now um, uh, that discussion of Rabbi Reshakish was dependent on the idea that Rabbi Meir does not think you can consecrate something that is not doesn't exist, but that itself is not true. Is it true that Rabbi Meir thinks that you cannot consecrate something that's not in the world? The following Braita teaches otherwise. Here we're talking about not 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 makdish as in consecrating, but rather in the, as the language of mikudeshet of doing kiddushin. Um, and uh, if a man says, "You will be mikudeshet to me after I convert," he's not Jewish, and so as a non-Jew, he cannot do kiddushin. But he's going to do it from now and uh, and say, "Once I convert, here take this money." and eventually will be Kiddushin. Does that work? So it doesn't exist in the world yet. He doesn't exist in the world yet as a Jew. Can he make uh, a, do a Kiddushin for the future? Or if she's not Jewish, and again, that would not work. If a Jewish man gives money to a non-Jewish woman and says, there is no Kiddushin. But if he says, for the future, does that work? Or the same thing if either he or her are an Eved Kenani or Shifcha Kenanit, which is equivalent to a non-Jew, and says, after I am freed, in which then she, he would become a full Jew, or after you are free, in which, in which case she would be a full Jew. Same thing. If um, a man goes to a married woman and says, with this money, after your husband dies. Right now, it's impossible to do Kiddushin because she's married, uh, but he wants to uh, jump the gun. And uh, so as soon as her husband dies, this Kiddushin will work. This is something that also does not yet exist in the world. She does not exist as a marriageable woman at this point. Or if a man is married to one sister and he goes to the other sister who is not married to and he's not permitted to marry at this point, and he says, here is your Kiddushin when your sister dies, when the one he's married to dies, then she will be. Then she will become available and marriageable to him. He wants to do kiddushin from now for something for a situation that doesn't yet exist. Or if a woman is a shomeret yavam attached to a attached to a yavama, so yavama woman is shomeret yavam attached to a yavam, so she cannot marry someone else. If a man goes to her and says, 
here is your Kiddushin for when the Yavam does Chalitza. She's not available to marry now, but she will be available. So all these are doing Kiddushin with a person or in a situation that doesn't yet exist. Is it valid? The Bimeir Omer Mekudeshet. Bimeir says in all these cases, yes, it works. So therefore, you can do Kiddushin for a future situation. So too, the Bimeir would say that you can consecrate something that doesn't yet exist. So in fact, he does think that. Uh, so therefore, he could explain the Bimeir in our Mishnah also to mean that it's the, work, the Kiddushin works because it's something that doesn't yet exist in the world. You don't have to say anything about her hands and say that he for he can force her hands. And so he would explain Rashakisha's proof. The Bimeir meant to say that yes, from that Padaita, I can prove that a Bimeir would does think that you can consecrate something from the future. But he meant, he meant is what he meant is that from this law in our Mishnah, one cannot infer it. It's true that it happens to think you can consecrate things in the future, but that is not actually the main reason for the for the for what is in our Mishnah. Uh, our Mishnah is explained by Rosh Lakish um, because he can force her to give up her earnings, which means that according to Rosh Lakish, the basic law requirement is that he has a right to earnings. Since he has a right to earnings, therefore he has to feed her. But since that's the basic obligation, she cannot get out of it. Uh, the opposite of uh, Rav Una in the name of Rav. All right, now we're going to further um, explain the Bimeir's opinion. Hamotav, regarding the surplus, Bimeir says it is Hekdesh. Uh, emat Kadosh. According to Bimeir, when does it become Kadosh? Rav Ushmoel Motar Le'achar Mita Kadosh. That surplus is not consecrated during her life. During her lifetime, it's hers. Only after her death, when he inherits it, then, since he made it Kiddushin before, made it consecrated before, when he acquires it, it becomes uh, sanctified. However, Ravadava says, no, while she's alive, at the, right, whenever, whenever he says this is consecrated, it becomes consecrated at that point, according to the Bimeir. Okay. Have papa. Now, Papa analyzed these two interpretations. Bimai and says, what case are they talking about? If it's talking about a husband who is doing everything he's supposed to and he's feeding her and he also gives her the weekly allowance, what is the reason for Rav and Shemuel? who says it's not consecrated during her lifetime, but only after her death. Since he is providing for her both her or the, the food and he is providing the allowance, so then her surplus should go to him. Since he gets her surplus, he should be able to consecrate it at any time. So it can't be that it's talking about that case. Otherwise, we couldn't explain Rav and Shemuel. If it's talking about a case where the husband is not providing her, her food and also not providing the weekly allowance, in that case, since he's not providing for her, she keeps all of her money, the, regular, the, the base amount and the surplus. Uh, so according to that, what would be the reason of Rav Ada, who says that it is consecrated, that he does have access to it? He should not have access to it at all. So either way, 
um, uh, it's hard to find a case where we can, um, a, a case that would be subject to a machloket. Both of these cases are clear cut. So we answer, Rather, we're talking about a case where he does feed her, but he doesn't give her a weekly allowance. Therefore, say, as I explained in the beginning of the shiur today, that food is an exchange for the base earnings and the his right to take uh, to and his responsibility to give her an allowance is in exchange for her surplus uh um surplus earnings okay so and since we're talking about a case where he is not providing an allowance although he is providing uh, uh, food but no allowance so therefore the uh, the surplus she gets to keep so when he tries to consecrate the surplus it does not work during her lifetime but rather only afterwards so that explains that in shemuel changes the exchanges the, for what what they are equivalent to and says that the rabbi said he has to feed her and then that's exchange for the surplus of her earnings whereas the regular allowance that he's supposed to give her is in exchange for her base salary uh, so you know, the op- completely opposite so in ca- this case because he is providing he is providing her with food and that is equivalent to the surplus so the surplus he does get and that's why it is is it is considered uh, consecrated even during her lifetime. All right, now, why do they argue about the what is in exchange for the other? We look for the things that are most common. The uh, Giving food, a daily food, that happens every day, not just once a week, so that's more common. And the base amount of earnings uh, are, are more common than the surplus. Not everybody makes more and has surplus more than they need. Uh, so the base earnings are the more common. Whereas Rav Adabarava reasoned that something that is a fixed amount should be equivalent to something that's fixed amount. The weekly allowance is a fixed amount, ma'a, each week. Whereas food, sometimes people eat more, sometimes people eat less. And so therefore that should be the same as the fixed amount, which is her base earnings. There's a base amount of what um, is considered you know, minimum um, minimum wage, minimum earnings that she is expected to uh, to acquire, and so that's a fixed amount is equivalent to a fixed amount. All right, now first a question to Rav Adabar Ahava. says that food is an exchange for her base earnings. Right, so that follows Rav and Shemuel against Rav Ada. Oh no, no, change the uh, understanding of that Braita that food is, is in exchange for the surplus of her earnings. All right, and now a a um, uh, now a challenge to Rav and Shemuel. Tashema. If he does not give, uh, this is from a Mishnah, upcoming Mishnah, if he does not give her the allowance 
for her needs, then she keeps her earnings. So this looks like it's earnings for um, for uh, the for 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 allowance. The base earnings are for allowance. That's what Rav Ada says against Rav Shemuel. So again here, Emma Motal Hashela. No, read it to understand. Uh, understand it to read that it's the surplus of her earnings. That is what's in exchange for the allowance. Okay. Hold on. But we said about that um, uh, uh, in the continuation of the Mishnah. It says, Mahi Osalo Mishkal Hamesh Shelaim Sheti Bihuda. The continuation of the Mishnah clarifies what is the amount that she must earn and to give him. What's the what's the base amount? And it explains it's the weight of five sela of thread uh, in Yehuda. So she has to produce the um, the amount of uh, yarn that she must spin is that amount of weight which uh, in in Yehuda. So you see that this this is a basic amount. Uh, so it's clear that it's talking about Maseyada base amount. So you can't really just reread it and say it's talking about a surplus. This is not a definition of surplus. And since it's a base amount, this as a base amount is equivalent as an exchange for the allowance. And this is, once again, a challenge to Rav and Shemuel. And final clarification, we were asking how much is the base amount of base required amount of our earnings so that we can calculate how much the surplus is. We'll just we have to subtract the base amount and then we'll know the surplus. And how much is that? It's the uh, weight of five selah thread in Yehuda. It's equivalent of ten selah in the Galilee. Different uh, uh, measurements, and so uh, we can read that Mishnah as saying that he gives her the uh, allowance in exchange for motad maseyadeha. And then Mishnah continues and says, well, how much is maseyadeha? So that we'll subtract that and then we'll know how much, the, how much, it, uh, uh, how much is the surplus. Baruch Adonai Lodam. Amen v'amen.